1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
2: Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
3: Charles Osgood is on vacation, I'm Lee Cowan, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. We've traveled to the summer getaway of East Hampton, Long Island for our annual Sunday at the Shore. And we've set up shop here at Gray Gardens, a fabled mansion with a pretty complicated past that we'll tell you all about. Many a seaside community like this is fascinated by tales of pirates and hidden treasure, an obsession that, as it turns out, is actually just as strong In the mountains of the West, Barry Peterson will report our cover story.
4: It's out there somewhere, a treasure chest filled with gold worth a million dollars or maybe more. Just follow the clues.
5: I'm not going to put an ax on a map for anybody. Why? They're going to have to figure it out for themselves.
4: Nothing ever there. A modern-day treasure hunt, later this Sunday morning.
3: Summertime brings to mind a host of childhood games, one of which really is played for keeps, as Bill Geist found out firsthand.
6: Between the boardwalk and the beach on the Jersey shore lies Ringer Stadium, home of the 92nd National Marble Tournament. And there it is, he picks up the stick. Marbles, who knew? That's how champions shoot, folks.
7: Don't knock it till you try it. It's actually really fun once you get interested do it.
6: Rolling to victory later on Sunday morning.
3: Just when you think ice cream can't get any better, it's available now in more flavors than ever. With Nancy Giles, we'll be sampling the offerings.
8: So many flavors, so little time. vanilla, chocolate, bacon. Just eat it. <laughs> Oh my God, that's crazy! We'll pork out on the latest in ice cream, ahead on Sunday morning.
3: Tracy Smith looks in on some kids looking after endangered sea lions. Christine Johnson found a roadside survivor. Martha Teichner cools off with a glass of iced tea. And Mo Rocca finally explains just how they got that ship in a bottle. Next. i am
9: The colorful history
3: of Grey Gardens.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: This wood-shingled summer house is considered almost quaint by today's East Hampton standards, but it was a proper 14-room mansion when it was built back in 1897 an immaculate garden bloomed out back, surrounded by walls imported from Spain, sheltering it from the gray, stormy winds of Eastern Long Island. But the home's reputation came not from that gray garden, but from its eccentric
10: inhabitants. You get very independent when you live alone. get to be a real individual.
3: They were the two yeah. Edies, That's Big Edie Beale, around, the mother, and Little Edie <laughs> Beale, the daughter.
10: You know what they said. But I was schizophrenic. You know, no Beagle is
3: schizophrenic. Had they been nobodies, perhaps Albert and David Mazel's never would have shown up to make their 1975 documentary, Grey Gardens. But Big Edie and Little Edie were some buddies. They were the black sheep of the Bouvier family, aunt and cousin to none other than Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. <music> Phelan veal a wealthy lawyer, bought the home for his wife in 1923. Back then, their lives were full of high-society must-haves, country clubs, debutante balls, and the like. But when Beale divorced his wife, Little Edie came home to take care of her mother. And for the next 40-some years, their lives and the house
11: unraveled together. Any little rat hole, even on 10th Avenue,
12: I would like better. I am awake.
3: The film finds the duo living in a single room, eating liver pâté and ice cream, surrounded by trash, cats, and other wildlife. I don't beat the bags anymore. Including raccoons living in the walls, who they fed like pets. It was big news when the County Board of Health tried to evict them, but the ladies of Grey Gardens refused to leave. Their famous relative, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, it did pay to have the home made at least sanitary, but soon it began to decay all over again. It's a tale so odd, it's become pop culture.
11: The best kind of clothes for a protest pose is this ensemble of pantyhose. In
3: 2006, Grey Gardens was made into a Tony Award winning musical. And after that, HBO turned it into a movie, starring a very convincing Jessica Lang and Drew Barrymore.
2: You can't have your cake and eat it, too, in life. Oh, yes, I did.
3: I did. I had my cake, loved it, masticated it, chewed it. The real Big Edie died in 1977. Little Edie, left alone and penniless, finally agreed to sell her crumbling weed-choked wreck. But who would buy it? I
2: walked in the entrance hallway and I said, this is the most beautiful house I've ever seen. And little Edie said, it's yours.
3: Journalist Sally Quinn and her late husband, Ben Bradley, the famed editor of the Washington Post, bought the house for $220,000 in 1979 with the agreement that they wouldn't tear it down.
2: The back of the house was flapping in the wind. And I walked over to the piano and I sort of went dink, 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 and the whole piano collapsed.
3: That room now looks like this. The rest of the home does too. Even that bedroom the two had shared has now been restored back to its 1920s glory.
2: In order to get rid of the cat smell,
3: (laughs) we had to tear out the floors and
2: the walls.
13: In a jersey knit designed to fit the contour of your shape.
3: Not far down the road at the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor, yet another play is in production. More proof the story of Grey Gardens lives on. As for little Edie, she died in 2002 after finally leaving the Hamptons for Florida. But inside the home that will forever bear the Grey Garden's name, some say the walls still speak of the two who would never leave.
13: can't
11: you
6: see how happy we would be?
5: Ahead. There's 265 gold coins, and there's hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets. We're off on a treasure hunt.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Legend has it that the pirate, Captain Kidd, hid some of his treasure right here on Long Island. But the search for hidden wealth stretches far and wide. Barry Peterson now with a story that took some digging.
14: Ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to, to go out and find treasure.
4: It is so much more than just a stroll in the Montana woods for Dale Knightzel.
14: I read all those pirate magazines and comic books. and Now I'm getting an opportunity to go out and look for one for real.
4: Like thousands of others in the Rocky Mountains this summer, he's here on a hunt for this treasure chest fit for a pirate, filled with gold, precious metals, and ancient artifacts. Its exact dollar value is not known. Some say a million, some say millions. How long have you been looking?
14: I've been looking now for about five years.
4: Aren't you getting a little discouraged at this point?
14: (laughs) No, Hmm. there's nothing to get discouraged about.
4: But this isn't some long-lost treasure. This is hidden treasure placed by an eccentric millionaire five years ago. It's there for the taking if you can figure out the clues.
14: I believe that his secret place is a place where there is some kind of running water. On this day, the clues
4: have taken him here to this lake near Yellowstone National Park and to this rock. And here we are. And maybe Dale is just steps away from life-changing wealth. Or... No, I don't think this is it. Maybe not. Dale had a long career as a professional treasure hunter salvaging sunken ships. But this is his toughest quest yet. This trip was his 64th attempt. There's no guarantee it's going to be found even
14: in our lifetime. That's right, that's right. But it doesn't stop me from looking for it because it's fun to look for it. And there's always the chance. There's always the chance. Which
4: no one knows better than the man who hit it, 84-year-old Forrest Finn, who made a career out of collecting treasures of his own.
5: Well, Mr. Peterson, here's Sitting Bull's pipe.
4: Wow, field that? That's right, the pipe from the Indian chief who bested George Custer and his men at Little Bighorn. Finn grew up in Texas and as a youth explored the American West. He learned a lot about life's value as a fighter pilot in Vietnam where he was shot down twice. He eventually moved to Santa Fe and made his millions as a successful art and antique dealer. The idea of a treasure hunt started after he survived a bout with cancer.
5: I said, I've had so much fun collecting all of these things. Why not let somebody else have the same Opportunity that I've had.
4: He drove out across the Rockies and left the chest.
5: And when I walked back to my car, I talked to myself out loud. There was nobody around any place. And I said, Forrest Finn, did you really do that? And I started laughing. As I have gone alone in there and with my treasure's bowl... Finn
4: then wrote a poem with nine clues, placing the treasure somewhere in the Rockies in one of four states, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, or New Mexico.
5: From there, it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up here, creek, just heavy loads and water high.
4: Now, do you want to add anything to the hints?
5: The treasury is not hidden in a mine. A lot of these old mines are dangerous. I mean, they have snakes in them. They have black widow spiders.
4: Well, that's a good hint and a good piece of advice.
5: Did I give you a hint, really? You're not being fair to me, (laughs) Barry.
4: (laughs) Well, I don't think that narrows it down a lot, i got to tell you. Lust and loot, it turns out, launched a lot of lookers. What has been the response from people who are trying to find this treasure?
5: I I, I stopped keeping emails at 65,000. 65,000.
4: Add to that.
0: And it's called the Fenn Treasure Hunt
4: the countless more on YouTube, uh, geht um den Schatz von Fen, Amerikanischer... with their own plans Moving to find the, the, the treasure. But if you look at uh, the first line, as I have gone alone in there, if you count the number of syllables, Paul, go ahead and count those for us. But is it really out there? Assure me somehow that this treasure is real. How do I know that?
5: The only way that I could prove to you. that the the treasure is hidden, is to take you there.
4: And what are my chances that you are going to do that?
5: There's an old saying, two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Okay. So if I take you out there, I wouldn't want to be your insurance agent.
4: (laughs) To avoid that deadly fate, we opted to just ask someone who knows a lot about secrets, his friend, Valerie Plain. you. You may remember her. A former CIA agent, Plame's cover was compromised in 2003 by a White House official. Scandal ensued, and Plame and her husband eventually moved to Santa Fe, where she met Finn. You're an ex-CIA operative. Do you give Forrest credit for keeping his secret for so long, because he won't tell anybody?
7: (laughs) Apparently not even his wife. Not even his wife. That is something.
4: Do you believe him? Do you think that treasure's out there?
7: Oh, absolutely. I think that this is something that Forrest has done to completely amuse himself.
4: Another friend, writer Michael McGarity, agrees. He is one of many people we spoke with who say they saw the treasure before Finn hit it.
14: Forrest, whether he admits it or not, loves attention. <laughs> uh, it, but he denies it.
6: He has
7: his shucks personality, yeah, he but he's as sharp he's, as Cass. Exactly. So we don't
4: take the shucks
14: at face no. value. Oh, no, his ego is involved. Uh, who he comes, who who he is, and what he comes from is involved. His whole life has been one big adventure after another.
4: Adventures that he loved, and hiding the treasure was a way to pass that love on. In your mind, who would be the best? person or family to find this treasure?
5: A family that, that is uh, joined together and going out looking for the treasure four, or five, or ten or fifty times. Take a tent and sleeping bags and your fishing pole and, and go out looking. That was my primary motive.
3: Up. Amber, come with daddy.
4: And that is exactly the motive driving the Dunstan family of city slickers who are slip sliding through oh, wow, the southern Colorado backwoods.
14: This is crazy. Amanda. I look is terrifying.
4: <laughs> Last month, they left their home in Orange County, California on their own search for Finn's treasure. What is the lore of this treasure hunt for you?
14: The adventure of it, the fun of it, the riddles, solving puzzles.
4: Parents Marlene and Mark, along with Amanda and Amber, Audrey and Ashlyn, are far from their comfort zone.
14: There might be bears, there might be wildlife, we might get lost, so it's it's super fun. I feel like I really bonded with my older daughters doing it.
4: If only you could see the expressions on their faces. Yeah,
14: well, you know, they're teenagers, so. Daddy's like Indiana Jones. Careful, Mark. Oh,
4: my God. The Dunston family trip ended with photos and memories, but alas, no treasure. As for Forrest Fenn, who launched A Thousand Dreams on a hunt yet to end, he has no regrets for what is out there somewhere for any of us to find. You would do it again.
5: I would do it again in an instant. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you've been brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold.
9: So today, we're going to be learning how to make fish smoothies.
3: Ahead, kids to the rescue. And later, here come the sunflowers.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
14: For
3: many of us, summer at the shore involves a lot more than just sea and sand. As Tracy Smith explains, for some kids in California... It involves taking care of sick sea lions, too.
12: For a few seconds after they were set free last week, the four young sea lions paused, almost as if they were reluctant to say goodbye. Not long ago, they all looked a lot more like this, sick, emaciated, and near death. But now they were back, fat, happy, and healthy enough to scamper down to the water's edge and beyond. It was just another happy ending, thanks to a place that makes these kind of things happen all the time. This is the Pacific Marine Mammal Center in Laguna Beach, California. Northern elephant seals. Keith Uh, Matassa runs a rescue station that is often the last best hope for animals in distress. What happens when they come here?
15: When they come here, they are basically on their last legs. They've had a rough life, so what we have to do is bring them in, start them over again, and give them a second chance on life.
12: Ah! That means round-the-clock care, heated floors for fragile animals like this little pup, and plenty of fish. Even for youngsters still struggling to eat solid food.
10: Oh, there she is! There she is, there she is.
12: The center is also a wildly popular summer day camp for young humans. For one glorious week, campers ages eight to 12 learn the finer points of marine mammal care, like cleaning animals after an oil slick or making a fish frappe.
9: So today, we're going to be learning how to make fish smoothies.
12: It's a tasty mix of herring and Karo corn syrup, pureed in a blender before it's tube-fed to the youngest, weakest patients. For 12-year-old Kylie Schaefer, this was the fun part. What was it like when you first came here, that smell? Um,
11: It was really gross and disgusting, but I've gotten used to it.
9: Pump it in at a nice, even pace.
12: pace. Notice that they're only working on stuffed toys here. The first rule of seal camp is, you don't touch the animals at seal camp. Education director, Kirsten Donald.
2: They're definitely not hands-on with the animals because we need to keep those animals wild so they can go back out in the ocean without a dependency on human beings.
12: Also, the animals might nip you. Yes. Turns out, baby sea lions are a little like baby rattlesnakes. They are kind of vicious, but not like, you know, they could bite. I like all five of my fingers. You like all five of your fingers? I like all (laughs) 10. So the kids simulate feeding and cleaning and capturing stranded animals just in case they ever have to do it for real. And they may get their chance. In the first five months of 2005, there were fewer than 300 sea lion strandings on the shores of California. In the first five months of this year, there were more than 3,000. And experts say we ain't seen nothing yet. Scientists believe unusually warm water in the Pacific, brought on by a weather pattern called El Nino, is driving away the fish sea lions usually eat. So the young pups, who can't hunt for themselves, are often left to starve. AND THE FORECAST IS PRETTY GRIM. NEXT YEAR IS LOOKING WORSE?
15: YES, BECAUSE WE'RE GOING TO HAVE EL NINO THAT'S GOING TO BE EVEN STRONGER NEXT YEAR. Um, AND THEY'RE ALREADY FORECASTING THAT THIS IS GOING TO HAPPEN AGAIN NEXT YEAR.
12: ARE YOU GUYS OVERTAXED AT THIS POINT?
15: Um, WE'RE NOT OVERTAXED. OUR RESOURCES ARE BEING STRETCHED. WE CAN RELEASE SOME ANIMALS AND MAKE SOME MORE ROOM. BUT WE HAVE BEEN AT CAPACITY OF 125 ANIMALS NOW FOR AT LEAST THE LAST TWO TO TWO AND A HALF MONTHS.
12: It hasn't always been quite this busy. The center was founded in 1971 by two Laguna Beach lifeguards and a veterinarian as a place to take sick animals that would occasionally wash up on the beach. It was popular with the local kids then and now.
11: This is one of my favorite camps that I've ever done. I, I just think it's fun to get messy.
12: The chance to get messy runs about $325 per kid a week not exactly cheap, but Keith Matassa says this is one summer dream you can't put a price tag on.
9: The seals are really cute.
15: I mean, who doesn't want to be here looking at the animals? And there is no feeling better than watching rehab sea lions run down the beach into the ocean and disappear again.
12: So for a kid to experience that.
15: It's pretty amazing. I wish I could have done it when I was a kid.
12: For campers, the work with sea lions is mostly pretend, but the thrill of watching them go home is about as real as it gets. Bye guys. Sure. Bye, bye.
16: Bye. 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 bye
9: Look. Isn't that a Howard Johnson's? Next. To Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
12: From Gray Gardens in East Hampton, New York, it's a Sunday at the shore. Here again is Lee Cowan.
3: It's a guest cottage with a thatched roof. There aren't many of these around anymore, but turns out thatched roofs aren't the only kinds of roofs that are disappearing. With Christine Johnson now, we take a tour back through time.
7: There's a place in Lake George, New York, where the past is a thing of the present. Uh, That's the original roof?
6: That is the original orange roof, yes it is. And
7: you have the weather vane up there still. Yeah. Howard Johnson's, founded near Boston in 1925 by Howard D. Johnson, was once the biggest restaurant chain in the country.
14: (laughs) On the road around the corner, here's the
11: place to go. The orange roots of Howard Johnson's. Join the folks who know.
7: With roughly a thousand locations during the 1970s. Should I bring some desserts? Yes. How about some pie?
4: No, you know what? Just three scoops of orange sherbet and two spoons.
7: The sherbet and the ice cream were staples for so many Americans growing up in the Madman era. Welcome to Howard in.
14: Johnson's.
7: And even younger ones, too. I remember Howard Johnson's. <laughs> we used to pile in the car as kids. Oh,
6: yeah, and that's what they did. Let's pile in the station wagons. We're all going to Howard Johnson's.
7: And businessman John LaRock is betting they'll do it again. Howard Johnson's restaurants all but disappeared by 1990, eaten up by the competition. But LaRock recently spent more than $200,000 to reopen the last freestanding Hojo's a location that dates back some 60 years. Was there any hesitation on your part?
6: No, not really. If you believe in it, you can make it work.
7: He believes in it because he's lived it, starting right here as a dishwasher three decades ago. It still feels like the original restaurant.
14: Right, yeah. Was that
7: important for you to keep that?
6: Oh, very, very important.
7: So he's preserved authentic details.
13: These are the old tables, they don't make them like this anymore.
7: And of course, the menu. With classics like the root beer float and the clam fry. Did we mention liver and onions? Holy moly, look at my plate. I have two plates. (laughs) But what many customers relish most are the memories. I grew up in Howard Johnson's practically. It feels innocent to me. It feels like an innocent time of my life. Does it feel like you're getting old?
6: It <laughs> <laughs> feels like that every day. I'm John, the new owner
14: Howard Johnson's here.
7: They come from all over, simply for a serving of nostalgia.
6: They even asked for my autograph because I think maybe once I'm gone, Howard Johnson's itself may be gone.
7: But save that thought for another summer. Right now, the hotcakes are selling like hotcakes. Coming
3: up, sailing in style.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: For those lucky enough to have their own boat, they can set sail anytime they want. For those who get a little seasick, maybe try something a bit more contained. Morocco sets sail in a bottle.
11: What kind of
13: a person puts a ship in a bottle? Wow. Uh, you could say someone that's insane. <laughs>
11: or someone with a steady hand, a keen eye, and a peculiar passion.
13: The type of person that pursues this art, they're in the puzzles oh. because it is a, a puzzle on how to get something big through a small opening diameter.
11: Jim Goodwin is a ship in the bottle builder in Charlotte, North Carolina. For how long have you been putting ships in bottles?
13: Oh. Uh, Pushing 15 years, I've been hitting
11: the bottle for that long. <laughs> and in that time, he's launched hundreds of ships into glass.
13: It's difficult for me to walk into the liquor store because I will go on the shelf and turn the bottle sideways. And of course, the, uh, you know, the people at the liquor store are going, can I help you?
11: Have you ever put a speedboat in a bottle? I have. I bet I could get a kayak in a bottle. That would be easy. Oh, the that's, begin- that's for beginners. Right. But Goodwin's no beginner. He's gone well beyond the sea. doesn't seem very hard to get a lighthouse in a bottle.
13: Well, the hardest part is carving the, um, the light and making sure that it fits through the mouth of the bottle. And if it doesn't fit in, through the mouth, you know what you got? A cork. Goodwin's
11: shipyard, aka his garage, is stocked with liquor bottles. He begins all of his projects with a block of wood, shaping each and every one by hand, a process that can take more than 30
13: hours. The art is known as a patience bottle when I joke and say, "Well, yes, you know you either have it or you lose it."
11: The building of patience bottles began in the 1700s a solitary craft practiced by monks and miners who would create whole scenes inside of bottles. Not long after, it became the pastime of sailors out at sea for months at a time. They were built mainly for sweethearts, loved ones, and a lot of times sailors would build them and sell them to uh, clear up their debts from when they were in port. Robert Hughes works at Savannah, Georgia's Ships of the Sea Museum home to a small, permanent collection of ships and bottles. It, it, it's the mystery. It's how do they do it? You know, do they build it inside the bottle? Do they cut the glass? Once you handle one, you'll notice that on the glass, no cuts. That They are all bottles, and you cannot figure out how they get them in there. It's an amazing thing. But even in the world of ships and bottles, there are sharks. What do you think of the cheaters in this trade, the people who actually
13: just saw the end off of a bottle and
11: put the ship in there?
13: I think it degrades the art. I've even seen some people where they actually cut the base of the bottle right here and then stuck the ship going up that way and then then mounted it on a piece of wood. So how does Jim Goodwin do it? How does he get a whole ship through such a
11: tight opening? All right, well, I think I'm ready to put a ship in a bottle.
13: Okay, now, at the base of the mass, you see that there is a hinge. Wow. Lower that down into the bottle. Okay, like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing fine, doing fine lad.
11: Wow, and then pull out?
13: Yeah. And then that raises everything up there. Wow. There you go.
11: Excellent. My first ship in a bottle. Oh, put her there, matey. <laughs>
3: My champions, it's about time to get these marbles rolling. Ahead. That's how champions shoot, folks. Marbles,
9: anyone? Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Nope, I haven't lost my marbles. I'm just doing this to introduce you to the kids our Bill Geist found who take their marbles very seriously.
1: The water,
16: the street, on a my babies,
0: All right, champions, it's about time to
6: get these marbles rolling. This may not have been the most exciting thing on the boardwalk this summer, but in the world of marbles. And there it is. He picks up the sticks. It's like the freaking Super Bowl. That's how champions shoot, folks. It's the 92nd annual National Marbles Tournament.
12: Yes. And that is game Marbles.
6: Featuring 49 of the best Mibsters, as the players are called, age 7 through 14, from across the nation. In three days of highly trained thumb flicking, backspin, deadspin, side spin, they can do it all.
0: You're witnessing history in the making this morning.
6: It's a tradition here in Wildwood, New Jersey, home of Ringer Stadium and the Marbles Hall of Fame. I
2: and mean, I think back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, marbles were the game. We have quite a collection of
17: you memorabilia. The
6: Barry Fox, CEO Wonderful. of the Marble King work. Manufacturing Company, founded the Hall of Fame and sponsors the tournament.
2: I would love to see marbles become an Olympic event. Marbles are played in almost every country in this world. Thanks.
6: Yes, there are still kids who play this ancient, unplugged game.
7: Don't knock it till you try it. It's actually really fun once you get interested into it.
6: Bobbo, Big Snack, Gnar, up against... Middletown, Bobby Nar, who calls himself Big Tam. Snack, is a veteran on the marble circuit. So you have four coaches?
7: Yeah. You have to keep a positive attitude.
6: One coach is his sister, a former champion.
7: There's not a game after this so you can't win you need to know that up here and stop letting it get you the only person beating you is yourself at first i thought it was just for
6: nerds from middletown valley maryland brooke donald brooke donald a 14 year old from maryland is one of the favorites nice. what's the hardest part of the game um mental
9: yeah mental keeping your mind positive because you have to have the attention span of a goldfish if you win a game you have to forget if you lose the game you have to forget you just have to <laughs> live in the moment
6: It can be tough mentally and even physically.
9: We've had like bleeding on the courts before. Oh man, this is
6: a tough sport. (laughs) Louis Lee from Colorado has the bloodlines of a champion. His mother, Leah Lee. You're a marble family.
2: We're a marbles family, yeah. All of us have played. My kids all did. They had marbles when they were babies. We'd take pictures of them holding marbles when they were really tiny, even though they had no idea what they were doing.
6: How seriously do you take it?
2: Well, enough that I get my kids practicing two to three hours a day, and we've got a marbles ring in our carport, and our living room floor has tape all over it with marbles, circles, and lines and stuff. Pretty serious.
0: All right, folks, without further ado, let's find out who our our finalists are.
6: Day three of the tournament. The field narrows (laughs) Tension mounts, especially among the parents.
13: Very
3: nervous.
6: Brooke Donald rolls against Emily Simkovich in the girls' final. Emily lines up her next shot. For all the marbles. And that's it, we've
5: got a new queen of marbles.
6: This day, Emily proved the better marble flicker. All right, Luke takes his first shot, picks up one, two. In the boys' final, Luke Gaffigan, who learned marbles growing up playing on the streets of Ethiopia, ran into a veritable marbles machine. Devin Lowendale. did,
0: like
13: champion. And quickly,
6: it was Game Marble.
13: For the crown.
6: Both the girls' champion and the boys' champion each received a medal, a marbles' wristwatch, a $2,000 college scholarship, and a crown. By tradition, the king also gives the queen a kiss. Not easy for two 13-year-olds. Devin seemed to be stalling for time, but in the end, he threw like a
0: champion. Your new king and queen sealed with a kiss.
9: Coming up, how sweet it is. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: As refreshing as a tall glass of iced tea might be, not all teas were created equal. Some are sweet, some are sweeter, some not sweet at all. Martha Teichner joins us for tea.
17: Did you know that 85% of all the tea consumed in the United States is iced, or that Americans drink more than three billion gallons of iced tea a year.
3: Experience the refreshing taste. Or
17: of in, in 2014, tea. we spent five billion dollars on the canned and bottled stuff.
14: We have a cherry sweet tea as well as just a regular sweet tea.
17: And then there's the matter of whether Somerville, South Carolina, a half hour up the interstate from Charleston really is the birthplace of sweet tea often referred to as the table wine of the south
13: very good
9: some tea how's that
17: thank you tina zimmerman is somerville's director of tourism in a mason jar
2: you can use a mason jar for anything but we especially use it for our iced tea
17: do they ever i want to show you mason as in mason jar
5: from the tip of that straw to the base is about 12 feet, and it was filled with 1,425 gallons of sweet tea.
17: Somerville mayor Bill Collins is talking about how, on June 10th, National Ice Tea Day, his city set the Guinness record for the world's largest sweet tea. How sweet? We only used about 1,600 pounds of sugar. You're a politician. Convince me that, that Somerville is the birthplace of sweet tea. You said I was a politician, you'd have to trust me. Would I lie to you?
14: <laughs>
17: <laughs> what is absolutely true is that the first commercial tea farm in the United States was in Somerville, in operation from 1888 until 1915. Eventually, cuttings were transplanted to Wadmalaw Island, south of Charleston where they've grown into what's now the Charleston Tea Plantation, owned by Bigelow in partnership with third generation tea taster, Bill Hall.
16: This looks like a giant hedge. Tea, unlike other products, it's harvested every 15 to 18 days. When the new growth grows up, kind of like this, what we're looking to harvest is the two leaves and the bud
17: all tea comes from the same plant form of camellia once it's harvested it's withered oxidized or not then dried
16: and cleaned the final thing is to taste the tea so you slurp it slurp it. yeah you're rolling it around on your palate
17: Somerville used 120 pounds of the Charleston breakfast black tea we're tasting, iced, for its world record-breaking brew. This is fun.
16: It's an American invention, iced tea.
17: Supposedly, at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, on a hot day, people weren't buying hot tea, So somebody put it on ice and bingo. The only problem, this recipe for iced sweet tea from the cookbook, Housekeeping in Old Virginia, dated 1879. St. Louis and Somerville,
16: take note. How does one make proper iced tea? Bring it to a good rolling boil and pour the water on the tea bags. Then we're going to pour this into this pitcher.
17: And for the secret, of southern
16: sweet tea? Add your sugar while the tea is hot. If you put the sugar in after the tea is made, you can never really stir it up so that sugar melts.
17: Here's two fresh brewed tea. And once you've made it just the way you like it, how about raising your glass to the ice and saying a big thank you the inventor of the ice maker.
18: Ahead, summertime. Hey, who doesn't deserve a three-month break after a rigorous year of kindergarten? And the living with Jim Gaffigan isn't easy.
10: Summertime is the time
3: for taking a vacation from your cares and woes, unless of course you're Jim Gaffigan.
18: Remember last winter? I think we all still have emotional scars. Well, summer is finally here to wash away all those horrible memories. Can you believe it? Summer. The golden boy of seasons. Everyone loves summer. What's not to love? Sunny days, warm weather, and don't forget, it's not winter. Now, it may not come as a huge surprise to you that I don't hop on the summer bandwagon. I am pale and nobody wants to see me in shorts. Like most pudgy guys, I prefer light jacket weather. I like a place to put my keys and hide the fact I haven't worked out in two decades. I'm sure most of you love summer. It's like a three-month vacation. Of course, this isn't true, but the perception of a summer holiday sure makes doing work during the summer feel like punishment. Summer does mean no school for my children. Hey, who doesn't deserve a three-month break after a rigorous year of kindergarten? I don't know exactly what's good about my kids getting the summer off. My kids lounge around the apartment like they've returned from fighting ISIS with a constant, what are we gonna do now, look on their faces. I already can't wait for the back-to-school commercials. Entertaining children is not the only summer pressure. The warm summer weather means pressure to do things. Do things outside. This is why I don't live in Southern California. Nice weather is like an assignment. Don't waste the day. Go lie on the beach and get skin cancer. I'm sure many of you think I'm being negative about your sacred summer. I'm just pale, pudgy, and lazy, but soon you'll come over to my side. I see it every August. That's when we all start regretting the horrible things we said about winter. It's when we go from appreciating our air conditioner to treating it like our most prized employee. You okay there, air conditioner? I know you've been working hard lately, but... Tell you what, after Labor Day, it's all downhill. You're guaranteed a seven-month vacation. Please don't quit. Enjoy your summer, everyone. Don't worry. Winter's around the corner.
2: Look at this. (laughs) Next. The smart car is cute, but now
9: it's
3: really, really cute. Driven to extremes.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Certainly no gray garden here, not with sunflowers like these around. Admired by the ancient Greeks, they still have plenty of modern-day admirers as well, including one that Serena Ultruel found not far from here.
2: In Southampton, New York, where palatial estates hide behind sky-high hedges, an oasis of sunflowers. Hello, thanks for having us. Oh, come in. I like your t-shirt, very apropos. This (laughs) is where 85-year-old Henry Buell puts on a dazzling display.
10: You like my Van Gogh? Look at this. (laughs) But it's not a real one. I didn't fall for it, but (laughs) I I, I like it.
2: Henry is a former investment banker turned full-time philanthropist. His summer home is ablaze with his passion for sunflowers. Even the front door.
10: It's carved from a man from Thailand. That's Uh.
2: incredible. He named this house Girasole, sunflower in Italian. It all began with a single photograph.
10: It's the inside of a sunflower. You took this
2: photograph and a fascination with sunflowers was born? Born, yeah. Helianthus is its official name. From Greek, helios meaning sun and anthus meaning flower. Native to North America, it's the state flower of Kansas, now farmed all over the world as a food source, especially for its oil and seeds. This is fantastic, (laughs) the sunflower pool. From the tchotchkes in the entryway to the larger, more valuable pieces, this home is a tribute to the flower that makes everyone
10: happy. Just supposed to be fun. It's not serious.
2: Serious or not, the extent of his collection is no joke. Do you ever think, okay, I've overdone it now? No. No? (laughs) No. Some of his most striking collectibles
10: are in the living room. They're about 1550. 16th century sunflower prints. Prints, yeah. Oh, my. They were originally black and white. Somebody came along and wow. colored them in.
2: You don't think you'll ever switch over to tulips.
10: No. Would no. you suggest it? I think no. we're too far in yeah. right
2: now. <laughs> Do people around Southampton know you as the sunflower guy?
10: I think so, because you didn't see my car, did you? <laughs>
2: Not yet. Look at this. <laughs> Henry, this is great. The smart car is cute, yeah. but now it's really, really cute. I love it. Bye. Mm. Coming up. Mmm.
8: Is that your favorite? Vanilla?
9: Chilling with Vanilla Nancy Spinkles? John. Yes. And it's a t- Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Remember when 31 flavors seemed like a lot? Now you could spend hours deciding on the perfect ice cream flavor, which is just what our Nancy Giles did. They
8: keep it old school in Seaside Heights on the Jersey Shore. From the wooden boardwalk to the Coors Ice Cream Stand, which has presided over the beach for 75 years.
1: What are the most popular flavors? Um, any, our most popular is the orange cream. And everyone says, oh my God, it reminds me of a creamsicle. Mm -hmm. Greg Corr's
8: grandfather started the business and invented the machine they still use.
11: Vanilla is still a very, very popular flavor.
8: In fact, vanilla remains American's favorite flavor. The average American eats, or in my case, inhales, 22 pounds of ice cream a year. What flavor you got there? Chocolate. Is that your favorite? And our totally unscientific survey found quite a few traditionalists. Vanilla with sprinkles? Yes. And it's a taste. Good. But Coors is trying to expand our horizons and our waistlines with flavors like salted caramel and cake batter ice cream.
16: I'm listening to everything that you're saying. I really am focusing on what you're saying. No, I think you're focusing on how good the, the salted caramel is. That's really good. Yeah.
8: And now for something completely different.
3: Today we are making American Beauty. It's a creme fraiche ice
0: cream with a rose petal jam.
8: Meet Ken Lowe and Paul Kim. They're part of a new generation of ice cream makers for whom vanilla is just a little too vanilla.
1: Shade is a smoked
0: dark chocolate ice cream Mm -hmm. with a caramelized white chocolate ganache swirled in. And this is a butter popcorn ice cream with toasted raisins and chocolate chips.
8: They opened their shop called Ice and Vice this summer, selling smooth ice cream on New York's gritty Lower East Side. It all started with a cart at local farmer's markets.
0: We love it when flavors just really punch you in the face.
8: Now this is punching me and <laughs> punching and punching. One of their strongest punches is delivered by a not-so-secret ingredient. Get this, meat.
3: We love bacon, as the rest yeah. of America does. Okay, wait we a minute. We love bacon a lot. And <laughs> uh, bacon yes,
8: ice we cream. Do. Bacon and ice cream. Here we go.
0: Get that bacon chunk in there. I know. Just eat it. <laughs>
8: Oh my God, that's crazy! Oh snap, that is crazy. <laughs> Bacon ice cream actually seems to be going over pretty well. Even baby oh. Killian finally pigged out. But what hasn't gone over?
16: We try, actually
3: tried to make a smoked salmon ice cream. Okay,
8: that's a little wild, you guys. <laughs> that just that's a little out there. And and.
3: It. The first trial didn't
8: really quite go as intended, but we're still working. One thing their ice cream isn't, frankly, is healthy. After all, the shop is called Ice and Vice. Surveys find that about 70% of Americans prefer premium ice cream, which is typically higher in fat. But one man is on a mission to change all that.
15: Our ice cream is low in fat, low in sugar, high in protein, high in fiber, and made with all natural ingredients. Did you actually have the nerve to just say that your ice cream is nutritional? It is. It is.
8: Michael Shoretts grew up eating ice cream. Who didn't? But after he saw his father contract diabetes, he studied health policy and got seriously into fitness.
18: When you're a personal trainer, all your clients really want to talk with you about is food. What they can eat, what they can't eat, what they shouldn't have eaten, what they wish they could be eating. What, as a result of doing all the personal training, they're allowed to eat. And ice cream, of course, was the most talked about food item.
8: Suret spent two years at his kitchen counter tinkering with ingredients, then went into mass production. Enlightened now sells in more than 6,000 stores across the country. So how does it taste? To be honest, maybe not quite as sinfully good as some others, but still pretty good. So the whole thing is we want this to taste decadently so good it can't be good for you. Exactly. If you use that as a tagline, you may. Cheers. Cheers. Chew on that while you're trying to squeeze into that bikini for a summer at the shore.
3: I'm Lee Cowan. We hope you've enjoyed our Sunday at the shore and that you'll join us next Sunday morning. For now, have a good rest of your weekend.
0: If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.